Well, good morning and welcome once again to our service of worship today. I want to start today with a little show and tell. Got a couple things I'm going to show you. This is the first one. This is one of my favorite childhood toys. Optimus Prime, leader of the Autobots. To me, there was nothing cooler as a kid. Except this. This comes close. This is Voltron. This is the leader of uh, the, the Voltron Lions, the black leader, line number one, Voltron. Look at this. That's cool. Uh, and then I want to show you this. This is my son Theodore's participation trophy from baseball a few years ago. Okay, so why am I showing you these three things? Because they have something in common. These three things are all being held together by this Gorilla Glue. Tough enough for the toughest jobs on planet Earth. And it is. Gorilla Glue is, is literally holding these things together. If it wasn't for Gorilla Glue, these things would fall apart. In fact, this guy's leg is being held on with Gorilla Glue. If it wasn't, he would topple over. Well, with that in mind, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you the story of a man named Joseph Scriven, who was born in Ireland in 1819. He was educated at Trinity College in Dublin, where he graduated and became a teacher. He then met the love of his life, whom he asked to be his wife. Tragically, however, on the day before their wedding, his fiancée fell from her horse while crossing over a bridge and drowned in the water below. Joseph stood helplessly watching from the other side of the river. In an effort to overcome his sorrow, he began to travel. By age 25, Joseph's travels brought him to an area near Port Hope, Ontario. There, he worked among the needy and tutored some of the local children in their schoolwork, often for no wage at all. It was there that he met and fell in love with a wonderful young lady named Elisa Roche. However, shortly before they were to be married, tragedy struck again as Elisa fell ill and died of pneumonia. Later, on one occasion when, when Joseph became ill, a friend who was visiting with him discovered a poem near his bed and, and asked who had written it. Scriven said, the Lord and I did it between us. Joseph intended to send this poem to his mom, who was also in failing health back in Ireland, hoping that it might bring her some spiritual comfort. I want to read it for you now. It'll be familiar. In fact, we just sang it. Here's what he wrote. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? 
precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Today, as, as we soldier on through this pandemic, we are facing trials and troubles, burdens and cares, the likes and, and size of which we've never seen before. Consequently, right now, nearly a year into this thing, many of us have, have never felt weaker, never, never felt more heavy laden, more cumbered by the load of care, doubt, fear, isolation, anxiety than we are right now. People's frustration and exhaustion from this pandemic has never been greater. Our mental and emotional morale has never been worse. So many people are just tired, including so many of God's people. We're feeling weary and worn. We're just fed up with this whole thing and, and deeply discouraged. Even though we know as the song suggests, that, that we should never be discouraged, we are. Because if we're being honest, we're not taking everything to the Lord in prayer like we should. And, and when we don't, we end up bearing needless pain and, and forfeiting endless peace. As I've suggested to you before, I believe the level and quality of peace in our lives is directly proportionate to the level and quality of prayer in our lives. And my friends, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, prayer should be our greatest priority. The activity that de de defines us more than anything else. Prayer. Prayer is our lifeline in the spiritual battle that we face daily. It's through prayer that, that God's grace and mercy flow and his help comes. It's through prayer that God enables us to, to hang in, to hold on, and to hold us together. And that is what our passage today is all about. Perseverance and prayer. Persevering through trials and hardships depends on prayer. Prayer is, is the glue that keeps us from falling apart, so to speak. Please turn with me. I know you already have your Hebrews 4. We're going to look at just a couple of verses here today. And, and before I read these two verses, Hebrews 14 to 16, just to remind us, uh, for, for those who don't know, Hebrews is a letter written to Jewish converts of Christianity who were struggling in their faith because of intense pressure and persecution from the Jewish community to, to turn back, to go back to their old way of life. As they were suffering for their faith in Jesus, some of these believers be began to falter, some even renouncing their commitment to Christ and, and going back to the law and the rituals of the temple with its priests and sacrifices. So from the beginning of this letter, what the writer has been trying to do is, is show them the superiority of Jesus, the Son of God, by pointing to the fact that Jesus is superior to, to all the former practices of Judaism because he himself is the fullness, the, the fulfillment of those things. As we see here, Jesus is not simply a high priest. 
He is the great high priest. Here's what we read in verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, there are two basic commands here. Verse 14, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, which is about perseverance, and let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, which is about prayer. But both of those commands are tied to the understanding of Jesus as our great high priest. This truth is so important because when we understand and embrace what that means, it will enable us to persevere and embolden and empower us to pray like we're supposed to. The the problem is, it's hard for us to relate to to that concept of of a high priest because they don't exist today. But that wasn't the case for the original hearers. That the high priest was the most important office in the religious system of the Old Testament. While there were various levels and orders of priests, there was only one high priest. Moses' uh, brother Aaron, of course, was the first high priest who was appointed on behalf of the people to, to offer sacrifices to God for the people's sins, which was necessary because God is holy and people aren't. <laughs> we're sinful. And sin has created a, a barrier between God and people. So, so somebody had to go between, had to mediate, and God ordained that there be human priests to do that, to go between, and, and that these priests would offer sacrifices. God deemed that, that blood had to be shed. That's how serious our sin is. The wages, the payment, the penalty for our sin is death. As we read in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, in the Old Testament system, it was an animal substitute for the sinner. God would look upon the blood of that animal that would be sacrificed and would turn his anger away from the people. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, which was the 10th day of the seventh month of every year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle to make atonement for all the sins of the nation. But he could not enter there lightly. In fact, he would go in with a rope tied around his leg because if he wasn't properly prepared, or, or if he entered at the wrong time, he would die instantly. That's how serious God's holiness is. Inside the Holy of Holies, the high priest would would sprinkle the blood from the animal sacrifice on what was called the the mercy seat. That is, the, the golden lid that was placed on the Ark of the Covenant in the very presence of God. Now, if the priest did that and and came out alive, the people would have probably breathed a huge sigh of relief because it meant that God had accepted the sacrifice for their sins for another year. It meant that their debt was paid up. 
but only for another year. You see, the high priest had to repeat the sacrifice year after year. And, and when one high priest died, he would have to be replaced with another. So they could never guarantee an, an ongoing presence with God to, to intervene for the people. So there were obvious flaws, shortcomings with this system. And that's the point of the whole history of Israel. This, this system is imperfect. It's incomplete. And it all points to the need for, for something greater. Indeed, for someone greater, someone perfect and complete. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great high priest, as we read here. Jesus was the only one who could be the great high priest because he is divine. He knew God perfectly because he, he was one with God. He was God. And he knew men perfectly because he also became human. And so being fully God and fully man, Jesus becomes the absolute perfect high priest who alone could mediate and bring people to God. Well, notice verse 14 it says, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So, so what does that mean that, that Jesus has gone through the heavens? Obviously, it's important we get that because otherwise we can't hold firm to the faith we profess. So what does it mean? Well, as I mentioned, the Old Testament high priest on the Day of Atonement would, would take the blood from the animal sacrifice and he would go through into the Holy of Holies. But he would go through the three areas in the tabernacle. He would first of all go through the door into the outer court, then through the door into the holy place, and then behind the thick veil into the Holy of Holies. So there were three levels to go through. But Jesus, the great high priest, didn't go through the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies here on earth. He went through the heavens into the holiest of holies there. You see, the Jews believed there were three levels of heaven, as Scripture talks about. They thought of the sky as the first heaven, the stars as the second heaven, and the presence of God as the third heaven. And so, as, as the human priest passed through these three levels in the tabernacle to enter the Holy of Holies, Jesus, the great high priest who rose from the dead, passed through the, these levels of heaven into the very dwelling place of God the Father. But, but hold on. What about the sacrifice? What, what blood did he bring? Hebrews 9.12 tells us, says this, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The flood of blood poured out over the altars of Israel for centuries couldn't come close to doing what the blood of Jesus did. The blood of our great high priest who went through the heavens, ascending into the very dwelling place of God. And when he got there, he sprinkled his own divine, perfect blood on our behalf 
on the eternal heavenly mercy seat of God, making perfect atonement for all the sins of mankind once and for all time, paying the price in full and completely satisfying God's wrath against our sin. And my friends, that guarantee is what enables us to hold firm to the faith we profess. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This, this is important here. It's, it's actually a double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable or who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, it's anticipating an objection. It's like, hold on. Okay, you've just said that Jesus is, is the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Well, how can someone beyond the heavens possibly relate to me and, and my, my little problems here on earth or frankly even care about them? The author anticipates this kind of doubtful thinking and says, no, Jesus is not unsympathetic. He understands our deepest weaknesses and feelings. Now keep in mind, these people, these, these Jewish converts to Christianity were being persecuted. They were suffering grief in all kinds of trials. The King James Version puts it this way, Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Whatever touches us touches him. Um, he is aware of our tears. He's moved by our sorrow. He wept with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. He's touched by our feelings and failures because he knows what we're going through. You know, when we're going through hard times, we want to talk to someone who gets it, someone who's been there, who understands, who knows what it's like. My friends, Jesus understands better than anybody else. In fact, he is the only one who, who fully and truly gets it. In the words of Joseph Scriven, can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer because he knows. Christian artist Jeremy Camp has, has written a song called he knows here's how the lyrics go he knows he knows every hurt and every sting he has walked the suffering he knows he knows let your burdens come undone lift your eyes up to the one who knows every time you feel forsaken every time you feel alone he is near the brokenhearted every tear he knows along with every trial and every temptation Look again at verse 15. It says, We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. This is huge. Not only to know that, that Jesus sympathizes with us, but to know that Jesus was tempted just as we are, that he faced every kind of temptation we have faced and ever will face, but with one huge difference. Where we fail... He doesn't. He, he didn't. He succeeded. Where, where we give in, Jesus stood strong. Where we crumble under the pressure, Jesus obeyed his Father. He was tempted in every way we are, yet he never ever sinned by giving in. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis put it this way. A silly idea is current that good people 
do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. My friends, more than anyone else, Jesus knows what we're going through. He felt the full force of trials and temptations that we can never understand. And so we can be sure that he's never surprised by anything we experience or do. We can go ahead and be totally honest about our fears and our failures because he knows. And because he knows, verse 16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Approaching the throne of grace with confidence. Wow. To the ancient world, a throne was, was a, a forbidding place of sovereign authority and, and judgment. If you approached a throne and, and the ruler or king didn't hold out his scepter, you could be killed. You could be executed. You definitely wouldn't draw near to the throne for sympathy, especially with a, a petty little problem. But here, we are being invited invited to come to God's throne of grace. Because of Jesus, our great high priest, the throne of God's justice and judgment is now a throne of grace and mercy. That's what verse 16 says we receive when we approach God's throne. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor. Mercy to God's unmerited forgiveness, his tenderness in sparing us from the punishment we deserve for our sin. Put another way, grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. And when we approach God's throne in prayer in Jesus' name, we receive them both, which is why we're told to come not reluctantly, but what? Confidently. Look at that. Come with confidence. Approach his throne of grace with confidence. That word confidence means with freedom of speech. That's the literal translation. We can approach him and speak freely, not because of who I am, but because of who I am in Christ, his son. Wow. Uh, An old man was wondering if his wife had a hearing problem. So one night he stood behind her while she was sitting in her lounge chair and he spoke softly to her. He said, honey, can you hear me? There was no response. So he moved a little closer and tried again. Honey. Can you hear me? There was still no response. So finally, he moved up right behind her and said, Honey, can you hear me? She replied for the third time, yes. When we come before God in prayer, we do not ever have to question whether he hears us. We can approach his throne with confidence knowing that he does. Through faith in Jesus, our sin has been paid for. We've been clothed in Jesus' righteousness, adopted as God's children. And so we can approach his throne boldly and honestly and pour out our hearts before the Lord, knowing that he knows and understands what we're going through and what we need, and that he will give us grace and mercy to do what? What does it say? Grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. That's what verse 16 says. 
That word help here literally means to hold together. <laughs> it, it's, it's a nautical term used in Acts 27 to describe the cables that the sailors wrapped around the hull of Paul's ship during the storm so that it wouldn't break apart. That's the picture here. When your life seems to be coming apart at the seams because of the storm, because of the hardships, what should we do? We should pray to God with confidence, knowing that he will apply the glue of his mercy and grace to help hold us together. When? In our time of need. That phrase literally means at just the right moment. God answers. His answers are always perfectly timed. His provision, his supply of grace and mercy is never too soon and never too late, and it's always sufficient. And through prayer, we receive God's mercy and grace to help hold us together exactly when we need it, which I'd suggest is all the time, my friends, all the time. I think a lot of the time that the main reason we don't pray like we should is because we don't realize just how desperate we are, how needy we are. We think we can handle things on our own a lot of the time and, and that we'll just call on God when things get really bad. But Jesus didn't say, without me, you can get along pretty well most of the time. No, John fifteen five, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We need him all the time because we are constantly in a spiritual battle, my friends. Prayer is the acknowledgement that our need isn't, isn't partial. It's total. It's full. We depend on him for everything, for every breath we breathe, for, for everything we can possibly think of. We depend on him, which is why we should pray without ceasing, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, because we never cease to be in need of God's grace and mercy to come to our rescue and help hold us together. Which is why at the outset of this pandemic, last March, we started a prayer clock to organize a continual flow of prayer to God for, for the multitude of needs and concerns in our world and in our lives. And, and many of you committed to, to signing up, right, to, to doing that, to praying a regular 15-minute block of prayer every day. Well, as we start this new year, we are rebooting, we're resetting the clock and asking everyone who is able to commit to at least one 15-minute block of time each day. Though we would encourage more. If you want to sign up two, three times, brilliant. The more prayer, the better. We want to do what God's word says, pray continually, to pray without ceasing. My friends, today, this afternoon, tonight, to tomorrow, the next day, and, and every day of this new month and this new year, let us hold firm to the faith we profess and be held firm by the grace and mercy of our God whom we address in prayer. Let us recommit ourselves to pray with confidence and without ceasing. As we read here, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our great sympathetic high priest, who offered the perfect sacrifice of his own precious blood to atone for our sins once and for all time. Through faith in Jesus, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence in prayer, 
believing, knowing that because Jesus feels and knows our every weakness, we will receive God's mercy and grace to help us. Help us hang on. Help us hold on. Help hold us together in our time of need, which is every time and all the time. So let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, Jesus, our great sympathetic high priest and perfect sacrifice who paid for our sins once and for all by his blood shed and his life given on the cross. We thank you that he has defeated death, has risen, ascended, and gone through the heavens So, Lord, empower us to hold firmly to the faith we profess in Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we thank you that Jesus shares our sorrow and knows our every weakness better than anyone because he has walked the suffering, because he was tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. And so, Lord, we praise you that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence in Christ so that we may receive your abundant mercy and your amazing grace to help us, to hold us together in our time of need. It's because you are our refuge and strength, our everlasting, ever-present help in trouble. Lord God, help us not to be afraid, not to be discouraged, but to be bold and confident in taking everything to you in prayer. Everything. Surrendering all of our burdens, our cares, our fears, our sorrows to you in exchange for your peace and your joy that gives us strength. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his head. Oh, God.
spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace one with himself I cannot die my soul is purchased with his blood my head with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased with his blood, my my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my Well, just as it is a privilege to approach God's throne in prayer, so it is a privilege to come to the Lord's table in communion. And it's especially appropriate in light of our message today that that we join together in proclaiming the Lord's death until Jesus comes again. In obedience of Jesus' command, we are now going to participate in the Lord's Supper in his body that was given for us, represented by the bread we will partake in a moment, and his blood that was shed for our sin on the cross, represented by the juice that we will drink together in a moment. So I would invite you now to get these elements ready at home, and then we will proceed with the words of institution. To its blessing and fellowship, all disciples of the Lord Jesus who have repented of their sins and are following him in newness of life by the Spirit may come and partake. This is not our table, but the table of our Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I would now encourage you participating, participating at home to return a prayer, either out loud or in the quietness of your heart, thanking God for the bread, symbolizing the body of Jesus given for us. Let's pray. Together, let us eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for us.
In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Once again, I would ask everyone participating at home to say a prayer of thanks for the cup symbolizing Jesus' blood that was shed for our sins. Let's pray. Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink this in remembrance of Christ's blood that was shed for us and be thankful.
And now receive the Lord's blessing from Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.